everybody. <laughs> we were shimmying to the song. The music makes you want to shake your sits. <laughs> Did you know what hybristophilia is? Something to do with, with boobs? <laughs> No. Oh, because I, I said that. I, and that you oh, just and said I that word like, out of nowhere. I was going to be Hybristophilia? Like, Hybristophilia. The, the fear of brists? <laughs> <laughs> so close. Sexual interest in and attraction to those who have committed crimes. That's what I said. <laughs> the fear of brists. <laughs> just wanted you to know that. Just wanted the people to know it. One of the most often asked questions is like, why do these ladies fall in love with these killers? I'm just saying it's Ophelia. I saw a funny TikTok video the other day. Uh, the guys, he plays both himself and the girlfriend on the couch. And yeah. it says, watching horror movies with, with your girlfriend. And the girl's like, <gasps> like, you know, hiding yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And then it says, watching true crime with your girlfriend. And the girl's like, oh my God, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh, it's cute. Yeah. Oh, it's or so just cute. like, this is so cool, but can't watch like something that isn't real. No, no, for sure. It was pretty funny. <laughs> that is funny. Silliness. Bristophilia. Hybristophilia. Hybrist, not low bristophilia. <laughs> Does that mean you kind of are? She's going to use this word in a sentence at least three times this week. This is my expectation. What's funny is it'll be a horror fact in six months and you'll forget it. Yes, I will. Okay. (laughs) She just wanted to nail that point home. Yeah. (laughs) Did you know that there was a woman that allegedly put a man's severed head in a bucket and told the cops that they would have fun trying to find all the organs? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a woman allegedly murdered a man during a sexual assault, dismembered his body, and tried to clean it all up, but she forgot his head at the scene because she became, quote-unquote, lazy. Wait, wait, wait. So he was assaulting her and she killed him in the process? Good for her. <laughs> she, she left the head behind. <laughs> she left the head behind. Officers in Green Bay, Wisconsin, said they discovered the body part in a bucket with a male organ. So you can imagine what that was. Yeah. Taylor Denise. His penis is what she was saying. Shaw Business. That's her last name. 24 years old. Was charged Tuesday. Whenever this was. I don't know. Probably recent. Charged Tuesday with one count each of first degree intentional homicide, mutilating a corpse and third degree sexual assault. Oh, now Jeez. she's she's assaulted. Now him she's now. assaulted. <laughs> was he now. alive? Let's. Uh, so when I read that thing, a woman <laughs> allegedly murdered a man during a sexual assault. Maybe she was assaulting him. I don't know. Got to read on. I don't. Yeah, that's why I asked. Okay. Is that well, what a turnaround? Right. We see our bias was clear. Totally. According to a criminal complaint, authorities say they were called to a home early last Wednesday. The man's mother reported finding a severed head in a bucket in oh. the basement. Hmm. I wonder if she recognized him. Officers said they found the head in the basement as reported with a towel on it. Other evidence included dried blood on a nearby mattress. The document indicates investigators started looking into Shaw business upon this is the woman uh, upon hearing she was last seen with the man. They found her at home. Officers claimed she had what seemed to be dried blood on her hands, sweatshirt and sweatpants. I guess she hadn't even cleaned up yet. They searched her van and uncovered a crock pot box <laughs> with more. God. I love how the article needs to tell you is a crock pot. Crock box. Pot. Well, it reminds me of uh the <laughs> show we just saw that was a take on oh my god what was the series where everybody had a casserole oh yeah <laughs> yeah with more body parts including legs so i think the crock pot box is like first of all it sounds funny when you say it but it's also like oh was she gonna cook them uh <laughs> as part of their investigation officers said they also found a tote containing an upper torso The criminal complaint says the mother told police that her son and this woman were in the basement during the day on Tuesday while she and her boyfriend, while the mom and the boyfriend were out of the home. She said she woke up early Wednesday morning around 2.33 because she heard a storm door being slammed, hearing a vehicle that she assumed was the lady had left. She checked the basement only to discover her son's head in a bucket next to the bottom of the stairs. Shaw Business claims she went crazy while having drug Her, her last name's Shaw Business? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's her last name? That's what it says. Shaw S- Business. <laughs> I know. 
S-C-H-A. Hey, what and are you doing? Shop business. <laughs> I know. That's what I thought. Okay. Sorry. She I'm just went, trying to. It, she, I know. She just caught up that. with the name. <laughs> shop business claimed. <laughs> <laughs> cannot be real. <laughs> what is that? Shop business. I mean, is you can Is Shaw the first name or it's shop no, business is the last it's one okay. word? <laughs> shop business. I don't want to have anything to do with your shop business. <laughs> Shaw Business claimed <laughs> you're gonna make me laugh. Okay, Shaw Business claimed she went crazy while having drug fueled sex with the victim. Prosecutors said. Prosecutors said, according to this alleged version of events, the man put a chain around his neck as part of a sex act. She said she did not intend to kill the man, but that she liked choking him and kept doing it. She allegedly described the killing as random. Shaw business. I got more. If you want some more shaw business. Yeah, I want some more shaw business. <laughs> she stated she then began to choke the victim and she described it as the victim lying face down on the bed with her on top of him, pulling on the end of the chain. The victim coughed up blood. That's when I would have stopped. Uh, I wouldn't have been doing it in the first place. I was about to say, if you, just, had, if you had a moral I'm just saying, conscience, you wouldn't have been doing it. Well, this. no, this could have been consensual. Oh, true. The choking thing. Oh, yeah. The but vic- at, at this point, I think no, we'll no, be no, on yeah. consent. I, well, and the drugs. They're drug... F- oh, you don't God. do BDSM stuff with drugs no. in your system, man. No like, safety! This is what happens! The victim coughed up blood, and she was just waiting for him to die. Okay. Yeah. Because that sounds consensual. While she was watching his face... <laughs> Shabusiness made the <laughs> comment that she, how can we laugh at this story? It's about murder. At the end, she's probably like, Shabusiness. <laughs> this is about murder. Stop. <laughs> I know. Shabusiness said in a lower tone of voice, yeah, I liked it. And Detective Graff believed her to be referring to when she was choking the victim. Shabusiness stated she thought it took three to five minutes for the victim to die. The detective clarified that she began, when the victim began to cough up blood, she just did keep on choking the victim and because she wanted to see what happens. Yeah, Kathy's laughing because every time I say Shabusiness, you can't well, keep a straight face. so absurd. I know. So she woke up that, and the victim was purple. So she kept going. Oh my God. She stated she enjoyed choking him and made comments Literally. to the detectives asking if they knew what it was like to love something so much that you kill it. <laughs> okay. Wow. Wait, there's more. I have tears in my <laughs> eyes. No, okay. but there is more. Okay. All right. Go. <laughs> go. She performed sexual activity with the man's <laughs> corpse for about two to three hours. She claimed oh to God. be in the basement with the man from Tuesday night until Wednesday morning before dismembering the body. She responded that the police were going to have fun trying to find all the organs. She business stated all of the body parts should be in the basement. She stated there should be a foot or a leg in the minivan. Oh, detective asked what she did with the head and Shabizna stated she had put the victim's head in a black bucket and put a blanket over it. She allegedly said a bread knife worked the best on account of its serrated blade. Oh, God. She stated that the knives should be in a black bag along with the body parts in the basement. She indicated that she would use whatever bag she found in the basement to place the body parts into. And she made the comment at one point that she did get paranoid and lazy and she thought it was the dope that made her paranoid. She had planned on taking all the party parts with her, but she only got the leg foot into the van because she got lazy and forgot the head. I'm done now. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know if I want to do my article now because I'm so sorry. <laughs> like everyone's still going to be processing yours. It's a lot to process. Holy God. It's a lot to process. I mean, mine's quick. Thank God. But I would like you to do your article. Because okay. I mean, show business. Show business was the business. How and is that spelled? S C H A business. <laughs> that cannot be real. <laughs> okay. Like, whatever what, what country is that the origin of that name ha- it, this okay one this is a pepper flake article as you would know it's like it's something out of the onion she has a full face of makeup 
for her mugshot. I, I gotta look Pepper would want you to tell I would you know Pepper would want me to tell you all that she has a full face of makeup for her mugshot. S what? S C H A business. I've spelled this three times now for you. <laughs> Cognitively. Sha business surname. The article is called Women Woman Allegedly Put Man's Severed Head in Bucket. Taylor Shabusiness. That's her name. I know. I read the damn article. Shabusiness. Okay, anyway, sorry. All right, let, let's move on from Shabusiness. I mean, that is just... Wow. Wow. Please, okay. please, please move on. All right, so <clears throat> we've talked on this show many times before why people actually watch horror. Mm. Um, and every once in a while, I'll find a, a movie... I mean, a movie. I'll find a, an article that just tells us a little bit more about the psychology behind horror. She's just regulated from shabusiness. Ah, uh, shabusiness. <laughs> you can look up the whole story. It's all I'm gonna online. Get, I'm going to get texts from shabusiness. <laughs> shabusiness. Oh, my God. So, uh, <laughs> okay. The, uh, let's be clear. The act of what happened was not funny. No, awful, horrible. But, but you got to throw in that name and it just throws everything off. Well, okay. I, I did amplify the humor. <laughs> So this is from last year. It was in Norse News, South Carolina, Spartanburg, South Carolina. So the article talks a little bit about how horror movies aim to shock the audience, often using targeted techniques to present violence, da-da-da-da-da. We've talked about this before. People having a morbid curiosity, the same thing that makes you look at a car crash as you pass it on the highway. So... I'm going to take this a little bit differently today because although all the articles say that, they'll be like, oh, these are people who are adrenaline junkies and that's why they love horror. I personally don't think horror, for me, it really, I don't feel a ton of adrenaline when I'm watching horror movies, unless it's something like truly terrifying. There are movies that make me feel that way. Or like when I was a kid, there were a few that really scared me. Um, but the article says, you know, they're aimed to shock the audience. The genre itself receives negative scrutiny. According to a study published by the academic journal Frontiers in Psychology, horror has a negative cinematic reputation. It's often due to low budgets, less likely to be nominated for awards. However, it does not pit a stop to its success because we know that Stephen King's it uh, generated 190.5 million worldwide, according to Forbes. Mm. So I kind of relate more to what the Huffington Post talked about where they, and this is just my personal, I don't, and there's probably other people out there that could uh, relate to this, that childhood experiences affect how someone feels about being scared. Mm -hmm. Because when I watch something like the Lost Boys, I wouldn't consider one, it's not that scary. And two, it's not, it's not adrenaline for me. They, the article talks about people who had positive experiences with scare. The experience becomes one that startles but doesn't contribute to real fear. Mm -hmm. So I think about all the kids I grew up with were like, Halloween was our holiday and horror movies were our go-to. And none of it is really about like, oh, I'm... I'm acting, I'm, I'm, you know, simulating real fear and that's getting me through, I mean, fake fear and that's getting me through real fear. To me, that's like, almost feels like it's a little bit too profound to my experience with mm -hmm. horror. I think for me, it's just, I grew up with it and I have a positive association to it and it's fun. Yeah. And I, and I think if I'm really scared about something, I'm certainly still going to feel it. I'm just able to tell the difference. Yeah. I think there's adrenaline to all of your sure. fun, ex all of the fun experiences that you have. It's a dopamine rush. 100%. Fun experiences when we're kids are a dopamine rush. Yeah. It's funny. It's social. It's spooky. It's unknown. It's unpredictable. You get like a little jump, jump scares, yeah. people spooking you, stuff like that. It's not like that you actually think you're in danger, but I think there's a dope rush. Right. Sure. No, there is. Yeah. It's just, I think it's coming from a different place. Yeah, and, for sure. and there are people who have a different sensitivity to horror and it like literally hurts them to watch it. Yeah. And those are the people that I'll ask, like, did you celebrate Halloween? Oh, we had pumpkins, but we didn't do anything scary. I'm like, my house was terrifying, you know, <laughs> and that was fun. We did haunted houses on my birthday. Yeah. So I think that that, 
there's that. And then the other part that uh, Forbes, I mean, Huffington Post talks about as well is the social bonding is different than any other genre. So, Mm -hmm. and we know this, right, from having the Discord and our Patreons. Yeah. It says, we know that the bonds we make under stress are often more intense, especially with people we have a positive association with. Mm -hmm. And there are nights that we watch some really intense horror together, and it's way more fun to do together. Absolutely. So there you go. Thank you, Shabizness. business. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> We're going to get a call from Shabizness' business's attorney. <laughs> you got some horror facts or something? Oh, I think so. <laughs> I think I have a few up my sleeve. She's like, I don't know if they're going to be as good as Shabizness, business, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What was Shabizness's business's crime? So this is a little thing we like to call. <laughs> You're welcome. Number one. Yes. No patrons on this one, by the way. Okay. Thank you very much. The air you breathe in a train station is made up of 15% of what? (laughs) Go ahead. Number two. Which character in The Wizard of Oz suffered third degree burns on their face and hands? Oh, no. Okay. Number three. What famous director is known for movies... That employed elements of horror and science fiction to vividly explore the disturbing intersections between technology, the human body, and the intertwining of the psychological with the physical. Can <laughs> read that one again? No. <laughs> I feel like I've like been drinking, but I haven't been. And I think it all started with show business. <laughs> story got you giggling and now we're just like giggling about things horrifying number four (laughs) in what state is wearing a nun or priest costume for halloween illegal wow bummer yes and number five the word bonfire is derived from middle english and literally means what (laughs) okay Thank you so much. I'm going to get Kathy off the air now for a little cool down. (laughs) We'll be right back. everybody welcome back to the show we are wrapping up this is the last segment of our ted bundy revisit for those of you who are just tuning in for the first time please know there are several episodes leading up to this one and this is the last one and the other episodes with our ted bundy content are going to be listed in the description so you can go back and start at the beginning if you like if not Check it out. We're going to wrap up the Ted Bundy case that we talked about in our first season with some edited and boosted audio material, and we're going to jump in and comment a little bit. Now, today, what's going to happen is it's the last two segments, actually, that we did on the original show. So we're kind of combining it because the last, the very last segment that we did in this series was actually pretty short. It was only like seven minutes or something. So we're just going to combine both of them today. So it might be a little bit slightly longer listen, but we'll jump in along the way. So why don't we just get started? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. We are back continuing our part three of our three-part series on Ted Bundy. We are going to discuss the interviews, I guess, that Bundy participated in while he was incarcerated. Yeah. So before we get into the the main interview, I want to backtrack a little bit to a man by the name of Stephen Michaud, who's actually an author, and he's done a lot of interviews with serial killers, and he's written about a lot of different serial killers, but he actually interviewed Bundy back after he was first arrested before his first escape. If people listen to the last episode, we talked about how he escaped a couple different times. These interviews that I watched, he would really display his charm 
and deflection of responsibility. You know, he'd smile and wink at the female reporters. He was self-assured. He spoke in circles. You know, when he was asked if he was guilty, he would laugh and then he would say, you know, does that include the time when I stole a comic book when I was five years old? And then he'd say, I, I, don't, I don't really know what you're talking about. You know, and he would say it in this really playful way. Well, demeaning and condescending. Yes. And then he would sort of leave it and he would say, I don't really think any man is innocent. But, you know, based on the what you're asking me, no, I've never been physically violent. So and then he <laughs> said he would say, you know, we've all transgressed at times in our lives. So he would just sort of play with it, never give a direct answer. And he would he was really good at taking the focus off of himself by stating that the interview the, that the investigators were wasting time and being irresponsible because they had not caught the right person. So he'd be like, you guys are sitting here interviewing me, but you know, I'm really concerned that there's this madman out there and he hasn't been caught and it's really concerning. Oh my. Yeah. So, so Stephen Michelle interviewed him and this was way before he could actually speak more honestly about his involvement in the murders. So he, this is really interesting. He would never refer to himself in the first person. In first person. <laughs> yeah. So he would describe things in great detail as if he was talking about someone else. And he's, he never spoke about who this murderer was, but he had no problem discussing how someone else could be such a successful serial killer. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, it was really bizarre. And he would remain really charming and, and use the narcissism to, to flatter Michaud, telling him that, you know, Michaud has the amount of intelligence intelligence and information and skill to actually be a successful serial killer himself. Mm -hmm. So he would just deflect a lot. And so um, while he was, this is kind of interesting while he was discussing more. And I think this speaks more to the, the, the sickness when he was discussing more intimate parts of the killings, he would grab the recorder and close his eyes and, and speak into it. And he was described to go into somewhat of like a dissociative state or trance and he mm -hmm. would develop a welt on the left side of his face. And when he finally came to and he would come out of what he was saying, the welt would disappear. Like so five or something. I mean, I don't know. It, it, I, I'm, I'm assuming it was from the adrenaline or but but I think it just spoke to he was really aroused. Yeah, you know? oh, absolutely. He was getting off on it. Yeah. And so he and he always spoke about this, quote unquote, successful serial killer is must have been really remarkable, but he never said who he was, never gave him a name. So this is the type of interviews that he would give before he was convicted at the end. And so, is this something that you see regularly in psychopaths? Because I, I'm hearing like the depersonalization. Yes. Thing. Yes. And I have heard that before where many of them will speak in first person. Yeah. Um, or they'll refer to themselves by their name oh you mean in third person and gotcha. well they'll, they'll yeah they'll leave, that's what i'm sorry that they'll gotcha, they gotcha. won't use first person that they'll they'll say like if i were talking i'd say kathy did this or kathy right. did that yeah mm -hmm. except he never used a name but he essentially did the same thing the killer or whatever yeah so this changed while he was on death row he agreed to a series of interviews when he would actually discuss what he did to his victims but before he did that once he got onto death row there was a guy by the name of Bob Keppel, who's pretty famous. He was a former detective and he was the most famous as far as uh, out of all the people who ever interviewed Bundy. And he was the one who also got his last interview. And he was able to get information that nobody up until this point had been able to get. Right. But it didn't start by Keppel actually seeking him out. It actually started by Bundy seeking Keppel out in 1984, so about five years into his sentence, or four <laughs> years into his sentence, when Keppel, he basically said, I want to help Bob Keppel solve the murder of the Green, the Green River Killer. He wanted to find the Green River Killer for okay. Bob Keppel because okay. he thought he could help him do that. Mm -hmm. So he contacts Keppel, he gets permission to do that, and Keppel starts to come in so Keppel is interviewing him in prison while the Green River Killer is out murdering. Bundy agrees to use his skills, his wisdom to help solve the case. But, but what Bundy didn't realize at this time is he was giving up a lot of himself by discussing the link between sex and oh, violence, sure. the vivid, lurid sex murder films he found fascinating. So really, he gave up a lot of himself, but didn't really lead Keppel 
to anything to do with the, the Green River Killer. Right. Let him tilt down to a lot of <laughs> just talked more about himself as usual. Talked more about himself, right, indirectly. So Keppel's like, screw this, I'm out. And so that ends, and about five years later, now we're getting very close to his execution. Keppel comes back and says, I don't want to discuss the Green River Killer. I want to talk about you. And Bundy agrees to it. In fact, he agreed that he actually enjoyed talking about his killings at this point, which is very different from when he was with Michelle, because now he's admitting to it and he's saying it's him. And part of this is because he had exhausted all of his plea deals. So there was nothing. I mean, it's not like he was ever going to get out of prison. So he was able to sort of fantasize and relive these experiences out loud. So he agreed to speak very frankly with Keppel. And he confessed to Keppel that he had committed all eight of the Washington and Oregon homicides. And he also started to admit that he had killed more than 36 that were accounted for. Ironically, he had agreed to Mm -hmm. meet with Keppel two days before his scheduled execution. Oh, okay. That's when he said he would start talking. So he starts uh, admitting to a dozen more women, offering leads to a dozen more. You could tell that Bundy, he was exhausted. He was out of it. But Keppel stated that despite having two hours left to live, he did not mess up any of his stories. He had probably rehearsed it so much. He didn't mess up any of his stories. Yeah, or he believed it by then. Who knows? Who knows? But he also didn't believe everything that Bundy shared. He felt like he would say things like he had incinerated skulls and they were, he had given him maps to places and nothing ever added up. And I think it was another game that he was playing because he didn't really want everyone to figure him out despite what he led people to believe. Yeah, understandable. Yeah. So he's interviewing him and Bundy's like, I know everybody's interested in the why. Let me tell you about, you know, why did I do this? But Keppel's like, I don't really want to know about the why. I want to know detailed information about what you did. So he starts discussing unidentified remains. He starts writing down the names of the people and passing them over to Keppel so it wasn't recorded and the police couldn't find the bodies. So he starts playing all these games. But this is the first time he gives information and a map to Georgiana Hawkins, which who was one of his first victims, which was really big deal. So the investigators followed the map to the skull, but it wasn't there. So he's playing all these games. But he starts to talk about how he knocked her out unconscious with a crowbar, putting her in the passenger side of his car. He would describe in detail their conversations when she came into consciousness, and then he would knock her out again. He was really just reliving this and thoroughly enjoying it. Like It's like kind of deathbed admissions to confessions, deathbed confessions kind of. I mean, I, yeah. Although, although there's a part of me that thinks maybe he was so deluded by then or always, that he didn't actually really believe they were going to kill him. Well, interesting you say that, and I totally agree, and I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. Um, yeah, I, just like when he escaped from prison, it was just another one of those, like, no one's ever going to catch me if you can, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. So what he did admit to, and I thought this was really interesting, because we don't typically see a lot of anxiety with psychopaths. They tend to be very calm, cool, and collected. But he did say after he strangled and killed Hawkins, he had this surge of panic and horror that rushed through him. Mm. So he started throwing articles of clothing out of the car, other evidence out of his car. He's like, I threw out the handcuffs and then I I would get mad at myself when I'd go out and buy another pair a couple of weeks later. He would go back to the the scene the next day where the police officers were already all over the place. And so he said, the reason I was nervous was that there was anything left in the parking lot was that I had used the same MO a couple of weeks ago. He had spoken to a girl on campus and used the same crutches and conversations. So he had decided that evening, for whatever reason, he didn't want to kill this girl. So when he killed Hawkins, he was paranoid that they would interview this girl and his identity would be blown. So that was a, that was a big, so he really just, he starts to open up about a lot of these details and, and there's too much to really talk about, but he knew things about Hawkins that only her family would know. So, you know, Keppel was like, he definitely, you know, he was definitely her killer. So, you know, he, he confessed that initially he murdered the women to cover up evidence and then became, it became an, an adventure. So initially it was more like he would harass them. He would, you know, assault them and then he would kill them to cover up the evidence right. so they wouldn't say anything. And then after a while, it just became this thrill. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that 
that there was really an evolution of the motivation for him. Like at first it was more about power and control and toying with them, much like he was toying with the public and these interviewers. And then it moved into the kill actually being something that he included in that enjoyment or Mm -hmm. whatever. Oh, that's really interesting. And then he, he sort of finished it by saying taking a life for him was the ultimate possession. Mm, for sure. Uh, I mean, that's playing God, right? In a you way. Bet. So as well as uh, the physical collection of the remains, which we had talked about in other episodes where he would go back, he would move them, he would put makeup on them, have sex with them. And this was interesting, too. He had made implications that he actually began murdering before 1974, but he never directly said it. Oh, okay. So we don't really know. I mean, it could have gone back all the way to the, when we were talking about the first episode, the little girl, the eight-year-old neighbor that disappeared right. and they never found. So it, who it, knows? It's like, it, it, it's, it, this is what's hard about this is that it's either that or this is more the toying with the reality in that he wants you to believe he was more prolific than he might have actually. Absolutely. Been. And I, I mean, in following his profile so far that would totally fit right he would he wanted to go down as this notorious he's just going to take credit for everything for everything yeah and so the very last interview that he has i think hours before maybe an hour before his execution he's crying and he's remorseful and for whatever reason bob keppel bought it but i i did not (laughs) (laughs) he was there so i imagine he'd spent so many hours with the guy right (laughs) yeah i mean there was just uh i think it was more of a performance but what i did research a long time ago was that uh, he was very 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 resistant and quite fearful and terrified when they were preparing him for the chair. I saw actually a couple documentaries that went all the way to the preparation of it. It was really quite disturbing to watch as horrific as this monster was watching someone no, almost it's very into like a childlike state. Yeah, it's very disturbing. I mean, and I can understand on m- many levels why he'd be disturbed. At the heart of it, he's like a little bitty baby. There's another factor in that if he really didn't really believe it was going to happen, then all of a sudden, oh wait, whole oh, crap, this reality is going to happen. And it's just scary. I mean, they're last meal, last rites, lay you down, strap you. I mean, you know, ugh, well, and put even, your hood even, on you. I mean, it's a whole thing. Well, and there's, I didn't know this, and I, <laughs> people out there probably do. I never knew this because I, I just never really thought about it, but because we don't use the electric chair anymore, but I right. guess they would, and this must have been so intrusive, you know, they would take cotton balls and shove them in his anus so he didn't soil himself. Oh my God, there's um, just so much preparation for death that we that we never really go through. And know? yeah, and just the, the way they described his resistance and crying and fighting and he was terrified. Ooh. And there's just something really so inhumane. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's why when we think about stuff like this, it's like, wow, I mean, the worst of the worst. Yeah, right? it's difficult. So, We're not taking away anything from the fact that you could deliberate about whether he deserved that or not. That's that's up to each individual to decide whether they believe in the death penalty. But either way, no matter who it is in the chair or on the table, it's still very disturbing. Like whether you whether you yeah. are yay or nay on the issue, it's it's a disturbing process to absolutely yeah absolutely i still agree with that it's like even if it's ted bundy Mm -hmm. and i can't speak from experience like i can't speak from experience as to you know if this was my family member he had harmed if i would feel differently i imagine i would Mm -hmm. i imagine i would absolutely feel differently Mm -hmm. but from my objective point of view i'm lucky enough to not have had a family member Mm -hmm. killed by him or anybody that i cared about killed by him so i can look at it more objectively and just say how disturbing the death it was i remember watching a couple of the documentary like the short videos on the preparation and then they did a um like a dramatization of it okay so they were able to be like more explicit um and it was really really sad and disturbing and i do think you know you made a a comment uh in there about he going back to that childlike state because his psyche really only developed that far Mm -hmm. but i and i agree with that along with you know we know what we know about narcissists and and sociopaths too is the the fear of like actually facing their own mortality because they feel they're so limitless and he had been up until this point and now he's facing the reality that we all have which is no one lives forever 
Yeah, and there must have been a moment where it kicked in. Yeah. Where he realized there was no more BS. Yeah. Like he couldn't, there was no more flim flam. There was no more narcissistic payoff. No. Like when you cease to exist, you you realize, you, when you're, when I, I think, I mean, I don't know, but I think when he's faced with, when a narcissist is faced with the end, that's a pretty powerful. There's no supply left. There's nothing no. left to. No, it's awful. Yeah. I mean. I don't have a I don't have a lot of compassion for him, but I'm no. just saying that idea is very yeah. is pretty awful. That concept is awful. It's like the real self that's been stuffed in a coma for years is yeah. fully exposed. It's Ugh. like if we stripped our skin off to like our nerves and our muscles, like mm-hmm. that's the metaphor I picture is just like such a vulnerability. He's back to that like childhood shame, mm-hmm. you know, the reality of he's not this compensatory sense of self. Right. Whoosh. All right. We have a, a chunk here more, which was our, our kind of our wrap up on the whole series. Mm-hmm. So let me just start that now. All right. Welcome back to the last segment in our three part series on Ted Bundy. This last bit will be a discussion on Bundy's death row experience and his execution, right? Like he had not done this before. Of course, he even did it on death row. So he was moved. Bundy was moved out of his cell after he was found with hacksaw blades behind like bars of his window. I mean, hey. this guy got this stuff. <laughs> How does that like, happen? And then he had a, I don't know, in an unauthorized mirror, which I'm assuming he was using as a blade. So that, uh, and he was I mean, also- I'm making up stories now, but that's like the guards gave him that so he'd kill himself or something. You know, like <laughs> but, I'm right? making up stories. Yeah. That's like, why? It's crazy. Where? What? <laughs> I know, I know. And I know that, you know, when they're on death row, it's such a, it's a whole other, the way that they're ignored or whatever over there on that section is completely different. But this is just insane. So in this, and listen to this, he's given a disciplinary infraction Mm, uh because he has unauthorized correspondence with John Hinckley Jr. So he's reaching out to Kennedy's alleged assassin, like close, you know, I mean, this is, he's all over friends. He needed yeah. a good friend. Like-minded individual. So, so here, here we get back to the point where when you were saying he didn't think he gotcha. was going to die or he could get out of it again. So he was so manipulative that he actually knew Bob Keppel could stay his execution. He could be the one that would, could say, we're going to put a pause mm-hmm. on this. So he puts a request in for another 60 to 90 days so he can provide all of the details and that all of the people and the victims' families would have the full story. I mean, how nice of oh, yes. right? Right. He, he was intelligent. He knew how to play this legal system. So he waited until the 11th hour to actually talk. So he, had, so he didn't give any of this information, like I was saying, up until about an hour or two before his execution. Okay. So another game. And then 10 years prior, he actually tried getting out of the Kyle Mega murders by getting a book deal, which he would describe as innocence. I mean, this guy, he, he has tried everything it's to get out. Well, and so many of situation. the different manipulations throughout. What is that? It's just unbelievable. Like the, just <laughs> the things that he, he was such a con artist. I know. Let me try to get a book deal to prove my innocence. I mean, he really just desperately tried everything, but with such delusion that I believe he believed yeah, I mean, I work. imagine when he thought of the idea at night in his cot, he was like, this is an the idea. thing. This is, gonna, this is it. This is the thing, man. Yeah. This is going to happen. <laughs> his life worked. I mean, exactly. I, I don't blame him for continuing to try and continuing to do right. all of these different manipulations because they work. They've worked. So why not keep yeah. trying it? Well, and then to add insult to injury, there, he, of course, the one... By the time he got to the second, the Kimberly Leach trial, he actually allowed attorneys to represent him because, you know, he kind of blew up. His oh, own, he finally realized. <laughs> yeah. So he had this young Florida attorney and alleged it was allegedly his last love interest. Take take a narcissist to, you know, fall in love with their attorney and sort of control well, that. It's himself, and, right? Like. He wanted, yes. he was being his it's own a- attorney. He wants to be in control of everything. He probably wanted, he, and he wanted to be an attorney. And so he's falling yep. in love with the mirror again. Oh my God. Yep. Go. Oh my God. <laughs> so her name's Diana Weiner. 
she begins to lobby to give him more time so he could offer more information. So, you know, she, he had fair. her right where he needed to be. Florida governor, as well as all the families of the victims are like, uh, no, <laughs> yeah, let's Thanks so much. kill this but, guy but, now right. enough. So then the day of his actual execution, he tries to delay it again by debating the death warrant and extending the sentence. And they're like, no, the death warrant's valid. You're still burning. Since he had already done this, Florida authorities would would no longer allow this because he had already done this one time before. And they're like, okay, guy, you have just run out of everything. (laughs) Like, you're done. I think one of the parts that were was hard for his wife. I mean, I'm sure there were many. But up until this point, she was a character witness in his trial and really stood by him and believed mm-hmm. him. But he started admitting to everything yes. in the end. She felt so betrayed yeah. and probably, I cannot imagine what she went through mentally and emotionally that she would not even speak to him on the day of his execution. And she and their daughter moved, I think, to Washington or something. So on the eve of Bundy's execution, he did threaten suicide. Yeah. So... You know, because God forbid, he didn't want the state to have the satisfaction of of taking his life and watching him die. Inevitably, Bundy died in the Rayford electric chair, which had been nicknamed Old Sparky. He died at 7.16 a.m. on January 24th, 1989. He was 42 years old. And hundreds of people stood outside of this prison. They danced, they sang, they saw fireworks, and they actually continued to cheer loudly as the, the white hearse passed by. People celebrated this. Yeah, they sure did. And I understand that. He created a lot of fear and a lot of hatred. And, I mean, not only his actions, but also his behavior created yeah. that. And that's typical of this kind of person, obviously. Well, wow, what a what a great, this has been so interesting, you know, um, we did a three-part series on Ted Bundy. Yes, we did. <laughs> yeah, we did it. We did it. We revisited it. I feel good about having gone back and editing this and listening to it again and just in some ways like seeing how we've grown and how we've shifted and changed and how we research and look at these things it's sort of very different but i also respect how we did it then yeah and how we went through it like a story and we really built the story and we went through it you know a b and c childhood and crimes and Mm -hmm. trials and all that and how we built it out and i appreciated that and i appreciated the work that you did and i and i still appreciate that that's the only reason why i wanted to revisit it because I didn't feel like we were going to go back and listen to junk. I felt like it was good material, but it got kind of lost in the fact that we were new and the audio was kind of so early. You couldn't hear it. And I mean, we were on our iPhones and I would in two different places. We would literally record and I would throw it up. I had to, could you throw it on up there? (laughs) Belle was like, I had to take her collar off at one point because I was in my old place. We weren't even in the same location. We weren't even looking at each other. I remember. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And uh, Ted Bundy, we've revisited him a couple of times in other episodes. And so there are some other Ted Bundy pieces of material along the way. I have some really, a really great fact when we come back from the break, though. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to come back from the break and we're going to talk about our our horror watches and books and shabiznas. So we'll be right back. give you the contemplative bumper for this yeah so <laughs> i had to figure out the surname of shabiznas <laughs> you're ridiculous the roots of the distinguished german surname shab lie in the former duchy of swabia <laughs> which is <laughs> i think making it any better it's like in southeastern Shibusiness, the duchy of swabia yeah it's, it's an area in germany the name is derived from the middle high German word meaning word shoop, meaning bundle or wisp of straw. Okay. So all of our German listeners already knew that and are laughing yeah. at us. Yeah. Okay. It is likely that the name was an, well, I mean, maybe, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I mean, that's assuming 
they know all the origins of their names. No, I mean, just they know the word. Probably. Yeah, that's true. It is likely that the name was initially born by a miller or by someone who lived near a mill, early origins of the Shab family. Shab business. I want to know where the business was added literally, later. It literally, it's one of those names that's... Became Americanized? Well, and it was probably the Schwab business. And so they made it a last name Shaw on business. a boat that came over from somewhere. That happens a lot, you know? Shaw business. But I like our our version of it. Shaw business. Shaw business. That, you, you, that's the Shaw business. I think, oh I think we got to make it a thing. <laughs> what? <laughs> All right. So I watched a movie called Tau. Okay. T-A-U. 2018. Held captive in a futuristic smart house, a woman hopes to escape by befriending the AI program that controls the house. I watched this movie because of our challenge last month was, you know, there was a bunch of female stars that I challenged everyone to watch a movie from each of them. And this was a Micah, Micah, Micah Monroe. Okay. I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. I know it's spelled M-A-I-K-A. Anyway, it's called Tao. And I liked this. You know, I enjoy an AI movie for whatever reason. I didn't sort of know that. I mean, I cared about... Okay, so here's what happened. I cared about the characters and I cared about the AI. And it was definitely... It was definitely sci-fi, obviously, because there's an AI but I cared about her character and she's, she is the main character and she's being held captive by a male, a white male psychopath type of guy. And it doesn't go to extreme measures as far as like torture and stuff like that. There's a little tiny bit of that, but mostly he, mostly he tortures the AI when the AI does wrong. And then her character, the main character and the AI develop this relationship and it plays into how the plot develops and and where it goes. And I really enjoyed it. I, I It's a solid watch and I would cool. watch it again. Gary Oldman actually is in it. Yeah, um, I've heard of it. Mm-hmm. What Did it come out this year? No, 2018. 18, okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll watch anything Gary Oldman's in, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, he's not a big part of it, but. Very cool. So I, I know you've probably seen this because it's a... Sundance film, but I just want to talk about it. It's a mental health piece. Um, and I feel like everyone should see this movie. Honestly, I, I, I think professors should show it. I think people need to see it. So the movie Four Good Days with Mila Kunis and Glenn Close based on a true story. So let me just start here. I just love Mila Kunis so much. And I feel like she has really... I'm so glad that Hollywood allowed her to evolve outside of Me Jackie too. because I watched, um, I watched, uh, American psycho part two just for fun last, last week. And it's pretty bad. Yeah. Um, you know, it's early on, she's still super young. It's still during her, that 70s show time where every character she played was Jackie. And, and I think directors played on that voice and that, that, that just youngness and naivete and all of that, that she was, but the best decision she made was black Swan because once she came out of that film and it was a big F you to the Academy, it was a big F you to Hollywood to, to allow her to really, show people what she was capable of. And so this movie, Four Good Days, which was a Sundance film, and and Reba was actually nominated for the song for the Academy Awards, which is when Mila introduced the song. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. There's a Kunis movie out there I haven't seen. What is happening right now? I hadn't heard of it. <laughs> oh, good. So anyway, it's, you know, it's based on a true story. A mother helps her daughter work through the four crucial days of recovery from substance abuse. So you and I have both worked in substance abuse recovery. We know what naltrexone is. You know, long story short, this girl played by Mila Kunis, real car- uh, person in real life. She has been in and out of rehab like 14 times from the time she was a teenager. She was hooked on opioids from like a knee injury or something early on. And Glenn Close, who plays the mother, is walking this fine balance between do I bring her back into the house? Do I enable this again? Or do I I shut the door uh, and give her this tough love? And you can, and Glenn Close is so brilliant in this Mm -hmm. because you can really genuinely see the conflict that she's struggling with and should I believe her? And then there's, you know, I think it's um, 
uh, Carla Gallo that plays the the sister who's you know, really overcompensated for her sister being an addict and she's an attorney, but no one really cares about the sister because she's successful. Nobody has to worry about her. Right. So she's been this invisible daughter who's like, mom, when the fuck are you just going to like give up on her? She's going to keep doing this. What I love so much about this film, and I'm not going to give anything away or, or what it is. First of all, Mila Kunis is unrecognizable in this role. I mean, she's just between the makeup and the acting and all of it, she's unbelievable. But the way that it's directed, if you don't know the true story and you haven't seen the film, is you are in this, you have the same vantage point as Glenn Close. In most films, you know whether the addict has relapsed. And so the film puts you in a position of your own transference about whether to believe her or not when she's missing for a couple days, when she misses her appointment. I found myself feeling like the mother. Yeah. And I, there are so many movies made about drug addiction. And I thought that that was one of the most brilliant because it really made you feel for the mom. It made you rooting for Mila Kunis. It made you rooting for them and watching the desperation of Glenn Close. I, I was blown away by this film. I love this film. And you're right. I, I did see it at Sundance. There are so many films at Sundance that I don't see, but I do try to see some of the good ones. And this was, I remember that year because this was one of those ones where it was like a ticket to get. And a lot of those sell out early. So I always do my research and stuff. And I actually ended up being able to see the premiere of this. That's and awesome. Mila and Glenn Close were there. That's and awesome. So I was at the Q&A afterwards. And I, I agree, you know, having worked in a, addiction treatment and, and had addicts in my personal life and all of that, it was very, I I agree with you. I I loved the POV of the narrative being written from the, from the family member's point of view because it really gripped the not knowing part. It really gripped the, it it really showed you the codependency piece of, of warring with yourself over the codependency and what to do and what not to do and what's the best course of action. And then Glenn, like having to just go with her instincts along the way and not really knowing what to do and sort of torturing herself less and less throughout the movie because, you know, you learn things, all that. It was a really, really well done movie and it should be added to any, I have a list on letterbox that's called addiction and it's all the addiction movies and it's, it should be on your list. If you absolutely, to, if you happen to need to watch those, even Steven root as the stepfather was fantastic. Oh my God, this they movie. were all so good, but I, I, I just feel like there was a real Oscar. Um, mm-hmm. I think they, they really both got screwed out of award nominations for these roles. Yeah. The next movie I want to share with you is a little movie called Rubber from 2010. So one of our patrons, Ice, hosts an event every month called Weird Wednesday. And Ice is not only known for being part of Mannequin Uprising, who does our music, and a loyal patron and friend of ours, but he also hosts an event called Weird Wednesday because everyone knows Ice likes weird movies. He really does. And he has great commentary (laughs) around it. And he's hilarious as well. But this one was not one of the weird movies where you're like, oh, screw you. What are we watching? Because that's one of the reactions that you have. Mm -hmm. (laughs) One has to really weird movies like, what the heck is happening? This one is called Rubber 2010. A group of people gathered in the California desert to watch a film set in the late 1990s featuring a sentient homicidal car tire named Robert. (laughs) Oh my God. The assembled crowd of onlookers watch as Robert becomes obsessed with a beautiful, mysterious woman and goes on a rampage through a desert town. What I can tell you is that it's a low budget movie. I can tell you that a lot of the reviews are like, what the, uh, 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 and it is an odd movie, but I have to tell you, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> it was delightful. So here's the thing. You are from this tire's point of view. 
not like exactly the POV inside the tire all the time, but sometimes. But the movie is told with an empathy for this tire. Literally, this there's a crowd of people that gathers and they've got binoculars and they're all gonna watch the oh, rubber that watch the tire come to life. And the tire does come to life. And literally the first 30 minutes, you really it's really weird because you're watching a tire come to life. You're watching like a little baby. It kind of like comes to life out of the dirt and then it goes around like bumping into things and it doesn't know what it can touch and <laughs> what it won't. And it doesn't know like what it's going to squash and what it's not going to squash. It's like this weird thing where it's like you're, it's realizing its own power. And then it goes on to have a murderous rampage, okay. which you really want from a murderous, a homicidal tire. Right now, I realize it sounds ridiculous, and it is ridiculous, but really, really fun. <laughs> I just liked it it. it. it was quirky and odd. It was like, you know, the vibes you get from watching something like Fargo or something like that. Yeah. It's just like quirky and odd, and I found it charming. <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. I'm so glad. It's just a tire on the cover box with a sexy lady. Very interesting. That yeah, that is a sexy lady. It looks like she's coming out of the pavement. And I don't even remember her from this movie, but I do remember the homicidal tire. That's hilarious. <laughs> maybe it's the same tire that came off of the car. Yeah, uh, maybe. Hilarious. Yeah. I want to mention before I mention my last thing that I watch, I just want to let you know that I did see Turning Red. And not only have I seen it once, I've watched it multiple times. Do you times love it? Because it's probably now in my, if not my absolute favorite Pixar. I am so happy. And I know this is going to be blasphemous to many Disney people, but, and I know it's very different, but I liked it more than Encanto. Hey, go for it. Um, and I like Encanto. It's a very different tone. And it's, I, liked, it's, I like that movie as well. I can't hear the song We Don't Talk About Bruno one more time. Or I'm going to want to like, you know, ram my fist into something. Become a homicidal tire. And it's also my least favorite song on that entire soundtrack. I mm. really don't know why it, it got as big as it did because there's so many other great songs on the Encanto soundtrack, in mm. my opinion. Yeah. Um, but Turning Red. Oh my God. My favorite character in that movie is Priya. Uh-huh. because Priya is so dry and hilarious, yeah. but everything from it has a lot. If, if anyone went to high school in the nineties, it's that feel, mm-hmm. you know, the boy bands and the, it's a very it's different so what high school funny. is now, Yeah, but, and also just, you know, anger mm-hmm. and overbearing mothers during puberty and all of that. Yeah. I mean, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but turning red is getting your period. It's like all, yep. coming of age. It's all a coming of age of story. Yep. Of course, they don't, you they know, don't say, say that. that, but that's what it is. That's the metaphor. It's so funny. Yeah. And it's really, really sweet. funny and cute yeah. and sweet. And it's got all the feels. It does. Yeah. Okay. The last thing I'll mention real quick, it's quite old at this point. I think it's a few years old, but I watched the documentary American Scary. American Scary is a look at the nation's tradition of horror hosting from Gulardi to Ghoul a Gogo. Follow this American folk art form from its glamorous beginnings through repeated waves of popularity to its scrappy resurgence and survival in the age of cable access and the internet. So the very beginning of this was good. And, you know, even Joe Bob has a, a, a brief interview on that. And that's what I was really wanting. I was wanting to see the history of, you know, Elvira and Joe Bob and all like the classics, but about halfway in all of a sudden it turns to like random hosts Mm -hmm. that it feels like you're not even really talking about horror anymore. (laughs) And I just was like, wow, it really started off strong. And then it got incredibly boring because American scary, when you think about the origins of the late night horror hosting, that was during, you know, when they would do the midnight movies and they do like, um, I know in Detroit, we had Count Scary during Halloween. And that's really what I wanted out of this. But then an hour in, I'm like, what are we? It, it was almost like sports casters all of a sudden. It oh, got weird. very weird. You know, first hour, 45 minutes is good. <laughs> you would recommend the first 45 yeah, minutes? Yeah, literally. Okay. Yeah. And some like Elvira was on. I mean, there's some really great, you know, Mike Price, George Chastain, some of the like, some of the classics are on here, but then it moves it. Curtis Armstrong is interviewed. Leonard Malton's in it. But then it like takes this weird turn. And I'm like, what are we watching? <laughs> I, I just didn't understand. Maybe I just completely, maybe I'm wrong. And I, I, I just didn't know the second half of these people, but it just became really not about horror. Right. Yeah. Understood. So should we, as a wrap up, should we talk about the movie, the lure? Oh God. 
Kathy, you even asked me, can we talk about no, this No, I just show? really don't even know. It's like a mermaid rock opera. <laughs> uh, go ahead. Oh, I mean, I can just tell the people what it is. Yeah, tell we them can, what it is. Start there. I, I, yeah, There's ahead. a movie called The Lure. It's a mystery thriller. It's Polish. It's from 2015. It's about 92 minutes long. Two mermaid sisters become caught in a love triangle when they fall for the same man. That's the real simple plot line there. <laughs> well, and here, let me just add this. If, if they don't marry the man who chooses them mm-hmm. they will turn into sea foam yep but can we can we talk about the it really it's also a musical i was gonna say it really is more like a disco musical yeah i mean yes it's a polish cabaret musical with really disgusting tails that i think those were vaginas yeah on they them. didn't they didn't make the tails sexy no and then there's like a random little vagina like three quarters of the way down yep that the Guy at the owns the club is like fingering at the beginning. Sexy time. It was the whole, and then they're yelling and throwing things at each other. I mean, I don't even know how to really describe it other than I can. (laughs) It's a, it's a really weird spin on the little mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. Yes, there is part of the original myth in there because the original myth is pretty dark. It's not the Disney little mermaid. That's for sure. It's screened at Sundance. Uh Uh-huh. Go of ahead. course it did. No, I was going to say, so this is what I wrote. <laughs> this is how I described it. Pepper actually didn't see it with us. And so I was trying to sell her on watching it. Oh, she's got to watch this. Because I think she would actually like it. Or at least she would be interested by it. Because this seems, I'd be she, likes mu- she likes horror musicals. And she likes things that are offbeat. So this is what I wrote. Think Polish cabaret musical with mermaids who act like cats and have vampire teeth. They do. And where all the men are for food or fucking or killing. Also, a retelling of the real Little Mermaid myth with child exploitation thrown in. Absolutely. And did those (laughs) work in a strip bar? And the mermaids look like they were 12. Yes. It was very uncomfortable. Well, yeah, I mean, the original mermaid, of course, in the myth is like 15 or whatever. But she isn't so. sexualized like this. Oh, yeah. Well, sure. okay, not this explicit. <laughs> no, no, not There's this. That's undertones. why I said put child exploitation in yeah. there. If that sounds like a fun romp for you, it's got really good reviews. I'm just saying. I know. Like, the thing is, is it's really well-reviewed. Critics and audiences alike like it. What can I tell you? The like critics' consensus on... Rotten Tomatoes is the lure adds a sexually charged genre defying twist to well-established mermaid lore more than overpowering its flaws through sheer variety and wild ambition. You I, don't, the, I didn't know what I was. You watching. be the ju- Kathy. The whole viewing was like, what's going on? I don't understand. What's going I don't on. think I was the only one either. <laughs> it was hilarious, though. It added to the zhuzh of okay. the watching. It was something. Yeah. <laughs> the, the music The music was laughable. Oh, it was hilarious. I just kept laughing out loud. It was pretty it funny. Was, I was very amused. Oh, okay. Yeah. All need, right. So need now we need answers to the horror facts with Kath. Number one. Go. The air you breathe in a train station is made up of 15, 15% of what? Gas. Human skin. Ah. Where masks still are handy. I really, I just, gross. <laughs> Number two. Which character in The Wizard of Oz <laughs> suffered third degree burns on their face and hands? Um, that's a good question. The lion? It was actually uh, Margaret Hamilton's character, the, the Wicked Witch. It was when she oh. is first on the yellow. This is actually really crazy. She was on the yellow brick road and it's the first time she shows up like after Glenda just gets there and she literally says, I'll get you and your little dog too. Yeah. And she spins around and there's that red smoke that goes up. Yes. Well, what she was supposed to do, she was supposed to turn around and land on her mark and then the stage drops and then she goes underneath. Right. Okay. But what happened was, is she spun around and it, I think it didn't drop fast enough is, is I think is what happened. And she caught on fire. Oh my God. And she, this is the, and she was, she had a stunt double, but they wanted her to do this stunt. And she ends up getting such bad burns, but because she had the makeup on, 
they had to get the makeup off because it was going into her skin. So they had to take alcohol with the burns when they were putting her out. Mm. She went through so much misery. She comes back from that. And then they ask her to do a stunt, the scene where she's on her broom and they're showing like the black and white in the background and the twister and the whole thing. That broom had an engine in the back that like lit, like start on, uh, it was yeah. some, something that would, that required gas. Okay. okay. So she went, Oh hell no. I just got back from this. She yeah. was, you know, and she had been bandaged her oh face God, and everything. Of course. And they're like, no, you're doing That's why I have a stunt double stunt double gets on does it goes up and the thing busts oh. a piece flies out embeds in the stunt doubles leg no. and she's a complete disaster from that so many people got hurt on oh that my set God. yeah well it was just a clusterfuck you learned that from the cursed Oof. films my god yeah Ugh. number three what famous director is known for movies that employed elements of horror and science fiction to vividly explore the disturbing intersections between technology, the human body, and intertwining of the psychological yeah, and the too physical? Much. I don't know. It's David Cronenberg. <laughs> the fly. Good Lord. <laughs> In what state is wearing a nun or priest costume for Halloween illegal? I'm going to go with somewhere in the South. Okay. Correct. Okay. Moving on. No, just kidding. Uh, uh, Oklahoma, Georgia, Alabama. Alabama. Oh, okay. And then the word bonfire is de- derived from Middle English and literally means? Uh, fire. What kind of fire? Mm, bon. <laughs> Bone. Bone, okay. Bonefire, an earlier sighting of Not- the word is mm. ignis osium which is latin for fire of bones okay that's pretty interesting i was gonna say that's pretty hot ah, 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 business. business thank you so much everyone for coming out today we really appreciate it and it is the beginning of may so i'd like to say happy mother's day to all of you who are mothers have mothers like mothers and watch movies about mothers either killing or being killed <laughs> This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. 